Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo takes you back to the days of vaudeville as they were seen through the eyes of one Eddie Cantor. But along the way, we shall see that there was more to hit this movie than just the start of Whoopi, and find a tale of Hollywood that proves to be a blemish. The ups and downs of the world of entertainment will be our presentation as we unfold with 1944's show business. So see the show, stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. The curtain rises on the screen's fascinating cavalcade of show folks. Show business starring Eddie Cantor, George Murphy, Joan Davis, Nancy Kelly, and Constance Moore. A picture that recreates every thrilling, exciting moment from the heyday times of sensational ballads through the rage of ragtime and jazz. For they're wearing them higher in Hawaii. Higher, 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 higher in Hawaii. for some other man. But I don't want a man. I want you. Yep. I love that boy. Love him, I tell you. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. 
1944, Eddie Cantor produced and co-starred in the vaudeville-themed movie uh, Show Business, but his co-star Joan Davis would prove to have a more important story to tell through the lens of today, and that will be our goal this evening. As we cannot do it alone, we have a guest fitted for such a task. She is an author and film historian whose most recent work, Fading Fame, tackles the absolutely necessary subject of misogyny, sexism, and ageism in Hollywood of the Golden Age. So please welcome to the show Pam Munter. Hey Zach, how are you? Good, Pam. Thank you. Um, so the um, the this is uh, this is an interesting situation we have. Um, this show started uh, uh, late last year, and you are the first person to reach out, going like, "I'd like to tell a story on your show," and I'm like, "I feel flattered here." So <laughs> I am very very happy that you reached out, and with such a great piece of material here. This is a fantastic book you've got put together. Thank you very much. So. I wanted to ask you because the the book that you've written is kind of unique in the respect that there are there there are other formats that have done this but what you've taken is stories from the golden age of Hollywood and constructed them into short stories and plays as history lessons to certain extents and in the case of each story, they all pertain to the treatment of women in the golden age of Hollywood. I want to ask you, what was the impetus for writing this book? Well, I was in a Master's of Fine Arts program, actually, as a nonfiction major, I might add, mm. <laughs> because that's all I've written. <laughs> I have written dozens and dozens of articles about these, some of these women. Joan Davis, by the way, was one of my first. And uh, when I got into the program, they informed me that I had to have a second genre. I thought, oh, man, I'm in big trouble now. Uh. That's, I, all I did was nonfiction. So I said, well, why don't you try some fiction? But, well, uh, you know, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to take all the information I have in my head about Hollywood, take some of those juicy stories that I have known since childhood, tweak them a little bit, turn them on their ear, and turn it into a fictional story that I hope will make a point about Hollywood in those days, as well as create some empathy for these women, many of whom did not fare well when they left Hollywood. No, yeah, the, the, the thing that I got from this is it seems to do a couple things for me. Number one, it, it backs up a lot of the discussions that we've had over the last five to six years in regards to how content is perceived and how people were treated in that era. Um, the, the treatment of women in film, um, in the in the industry itself has always been known to be unequal and unbalanced and it's only within the most recent history that action has actually been taken to whatever extent it has been impactful um but you right off at the top of your intro the one thing that i cling to as a media of a counterbalance to the people who you know think down on the subject you did point out that like the fleeting promise of a feminist theme with Katherine Hepburn and Rosalind Russell. And I found it interesting in the respect that it's so unfortunate that those are the only real, like there's so limited options in this era to watch strong women uh, on portrayed on screen. And it's very rare to hear about stories of women behind the scenes, especially um, getting there, getting to prove themselves in a producerial capacity or a directorial capacity. Um, and, I, what I think, especially with the Joan Davis story, the ageism mm -hmm. to me uh, brought up an even uh, more poignant question because 
the the realm of casting as it has existed in the last couple of years has been once you reach past 30 you're relegated to either mom roles or you get very little until you suddenly get old and now you play a motherly character or a matronly character or a grandmother character and um i wanted to know after writing this book because it has come out within the last year Mm-hmm. Did did the events of the last couple of years um, really kick this into gear? Has this always kind of been boiling up for you with this particular subject? With ho- Hollywood has been such a strong part of my being since I, as long as I could remember. So it was easy to lapse into this theme, given I had to produce something fictional. Yeah. That was easy. But when all of this came out about Harvey Weinstein and all these other executives that are being called to the corner for their awful behavior. It occurred to me that people are talking about this as though it's new. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All the way back to the very beginning. I mean, the whole casting couch notion and women only getting on screen by virtue of the back room. I mean, the five white men who controlled Hollywood in those days were notorious for their screening techniques, shall we say. Yeah. And only if you were willing and beautiful could you stand a chance. Yeah. And you you point to that right off the bat. So anybody who reads this book, please be aware that if you if you find if you find any of this to seem nonsensical, then you might as well put the book down because it's not it's not going to be your cup of tea. But I will tell yeah. you that the short stories here um they also do a good job at painting a picture of the of the industry itself. Obviously, the theme is very prevalent, but you are painting a very intriguing picture of the industry as it existed a, as far back as the silent era into the television era. And when when we were talking back and forth about having you on the show, I, I the goal of this show is usually to dissect a film pre-1968 and go to the, go through and break it down bit by bit as best as we can, whether in detail or you know through some summation. Mm-hmm. And you you gave me two options, and one of them was show business. And the reason why I threw out show business as let's do this is because I am a sucker for old time radio comedy, and Eddie Cantor is somebody that I am familiar with only to a point. <laughs> uh-huh. And, uh huh. And um the my exposure to him is primarily through some select episodes of his show that feature Burt Gordon as the mad Russian uh, with uh, how do you do? And, (laughs) um, and so to realize a little bit more about his film career was a good eye opener for me. Now I, I was tangentially aware of him having film success early on in the silent into the sound era, but Mm -hmm. to, to, to learn more about Joan Davis, who I think really is the, it's interesting to see how people perceived her, especially within the community today. Um, I did research and this is, this is the impression that people are giving versus what I got out of your story. The impression that I kept Uh seeing was that she was controlling a diva, overtly Mm. manipulative and your story humanized her. In a way that well, they call all powerful women, isn't it, Zach? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was it was devastating to see a lot of that vitriol when I was doing the research for this because I uh-huh. I read your story first 
And so my sympathies were on Joan's side from moment one and also from watching the movie and being like, oh, my gosh, she is super talented. And I, yes. I, I need to figure out I need to find more of her films to watch and then to read articles from whether it be blogs or attempts at dissecting this history there. The there there either comes the, the word tragic or it comes the word, what I heard out loud was the B word. Um, uh, and uh, that that really took me aback because every these people who are writing these particular articles or blogs or whatever the heck they are, number one, anytime they're talking about referring back to a man that worked with her, they're reporting back that the word that those people used to describe her was that word. And I, uh, th- anything from Jim Backus on down to any of the other men that were in charge of the production. So I, I think it comes from Backus. He wrote a book about his life, mm. and he exploited Joan. And you know, she was when they were working together. He he was her co-star in *I Married Joan*, which is a very popular situation comedy in the early '50s on NBC. Um, they weren't fond of each other. Mm-hmm. basically. And she was drinking in those days. She had started to drink and she was having some physical issues with her heart, which she didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And uh, I would guess that she probably was difficult then. She was also, by the way, the producer of the series, which probably didn't endear her to Bacchus at all. Right. Because like, and when you're talking about a woman producing a TV series at that time, our only real example of it, and the one that everybody pointed to in a lot of articles that I read was Lucille Ball, um, because of Lucy's. Yeah, she didn't. She wouldn't produce it. She was producing it. Right, and so what I get out of Joan's story is a clear story of somebody being pushed to the point where she's made to believe that she's crazy. And mm-hmm. that that didn't sit well with me, especially from a modern lens, but even from an anytime lens. Um, th- this show has been dedicated to not excusing any element of the past. And when I look at Joan's story, it is a clear-cut case of unacceptable. And to know more about Eddie Cantor within that... And to then dig through the rabbit hole of theories and, you know, like the, the, the stories about their relationship with each other. That's what mm-hmm. that's what really took me uh, away from my preconceptions of Eddie Cantor, because the preconception that I had from the limited exposure that I've had, whether it's through select parts of his radio show or the times he was on Jack Benny's program or even Bob Hope's program or wherever, the conception that I got was Eddie was a happily married man to Ida Cantor <laughs> with five daughters and the five daughters were a constant joke. And your story yeah. automatically dismantles that joke in a very mm-hmm. intelligent way. <laughs> and, yeah. and well, to, yeah, it was real possible then because there wasn't much, much mass media. You know, we had, movie and television magazines back then and and that they were all controlled by the studios Mm -hmm. and by the publicists so we didn't know that he was messing around 
And you had fixers on top of that. And those are stories that always come out through, through through various different mediums over the last 30 years, whether somebody making a movie like L.A. Confidential or uh, even Hail Caesar, where they talk about these attempts to, you know, cover up the different philanderings of a movie star. Um, but oh, even, yeah. But Sometimes even, a lot worse than that. What was that? Sometimes a lot worse than philandering. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, when the thing that show business did for me as a film in assessing all of this information was I saw two things out of it. One, I saw the obvious thing, which was Eddie Cantor, Andy, Eddie Cantor self aggrandizing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because this movie is, I, I will say this. To me, it's better. It's a better biopic than the Eddie Cantor story, which obviously, as we were talking about well, off mic, you revealed he had nothing really to do with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. And he, he sandwiched in his most famous performance, uh, Megan Luppy, at the end of the film without any of his co-stars in the scene. <laughs> Well, you know, he was the producer. He, he wrote the checks. So he yeah. could do what he wanted. Yeah. And what was even more interesting in that, in, within that regard was that he's basically the co-star of his own story because it the, the romantic lead in question is not Eddie Cantor. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's, um, it's very, it's very interesting to see this unfold. And George Murphy is the, your main male co-lead. And yeah, George, by the way, talk about Pam teaching me stuff right away. Did not realize George Murphy was uh, a senator from California. So that is, in fact, I, I wrote my master's thesis in political science on his election. Really? Because I'm pretty sure it was due to his being on TV every night in these movies, which they, of course, <laughs> showed the night of the night when the election was going on. Yikes. That is, that's crazy. And so like, so when you were doing all these master courses with film history and shorts and turning them into those short stories as you're as within that did how like, did, were, were you ever like losing any of your respect or love for golden age Hollywood in spite of that? Because I, I, I always want to know if the people who are digging into the research uh, tend to lose that glow or that appreciation for that era of time. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Not in the least. In fact, it made me appreciate even more what these women had gone through just to do what they loved the most. I mean, the dues are pretty high, not so much for the men, yeah. but certainly for the women, what they had to go through. And of course, the whole studio contract system where you were an indentured servant for seven years. Studios <laughs> told you what to play and you know who to date and where to live and what to eat. And you know, it was pretty uh, oppressive, mm. particularly for the women. And yeah. I think at the end, they're they are the ones who walked away with the most interpersonal damage, if I can use that phrase. I I think that's more than accurate. One of my favorite golden age Hollywood actresses is Dorothy L'Amour. And yeah. to read about the bullshit she went up, she put up with, yeah. is um, absolutely discouraging, and it certainly does not make me like Bing Crosby anymore. Um, but uh, both. yeah, my, Honor. yeah, yeah, they, they both have. I, I've had issues with Bob Hope in other areas too, so it's it's kind of like a multi shot with me on that one. <laughs> it's uh, 
his uh, his his um, his flip flopping in certain regards, and uh, by the later half of his career is is um, uh, discouraging. Um, yes. But there is uh, but there's a lot of elements of hope that I still in, I still can enjoy. Whenever I get into the discussion of Lamore, though, anytime I sit down with the road to Singapore or the road to Morocco, mm-hmm. I I tend to have a moment to breathe because I'm aware of like how how hard was it to a shoot this shot with Dorothy there and two mm-hmm. how how difficult was it on her um, yes and um and one of the but the, as you said though there are those when you see those high spots in there you brought up the indentured servancy of these contract mm-hmm. systems and we discussed a couple episodes back to each his own with Olivia de Havilland which was the culmination of uh, a long hiatus as she fought it out with Jack Warner in court and, and one. Yep. And one. And that's the big thing is, is that I'm glad that you didn't lose your appreciation for it because my, my big fear when doing this kind of show or talking about this subject is that ideally I'd like to be reaching younger people in the respect that like, hopefully they are intrigued by these stories enough to, you know, take in the take in the lessons of where there were triumphs and not just relegate it to the unfortunate predominance of racism, sexism, et cetera. Um, I think if I were going to be disenchanted, it would have been with Doris Day because I grew up being absolutely enthralled by her. I mean, I went to all their movies. I bought all their records. I would walk by her house in Beverly Hills. I mean, I was completely gaga over Doris Day. And all I knew about her, as the rest of us, was what we read in movie magazines. I didn't know until I was an adult um, her, her personality, which was slightly like movies, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the awful people she chose to marry mm-hmm. and really the tragedies of her life. But what it did, as I say, I think would, was to bring me more empathy, feeling more empathy toward her and what she had to go through to do what her husband basically told her to do. Yeah. Which, which is, um, it, it's, it was interesting reading that particular section with Doris Day passing not too long ago. And I, I had a lot of affinity for her as an actress after revisiting the man who knew too much, because while I'm not, a while I'm not a fan of that version of the movie, uh, because I prefer the mm-hmm. 34 version just from an aesthetic purposes because I'm a film dork. But um, the her performance in it, when she when Jimmy Stewart's giving her the pills to calm down, quote unquote, um, yeah. which which, as we talked about on that particular show, it's it's very irresponsible of Jimmy Stewart to do that kind of doctoring. <laughs> For God's sake. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but her performance of being distraught, it was it was an immediate shatter to all those preconceptions of just the girl next door and those elements of her personality within the Rock Hudson films. And well, so, her role in "Love Me or Leave Me" was like that too. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, she should have been nominated for that because that was, I think, her best acting performance across the board. I would put I would I would put up a, a torch for that as well, and. And then the other the other f- figure within ho- overall Hollywood that I I tend to cling to as an example of somebody in the particular system because prior to this you could go back to Alice Guy Blachet and 
other contemporaries in early, early cinema before the, the business was much more dominated by men. Um, the moment they realized they could make money out of it. Um, the, uh, the big thing was Ida Lupino's directing career because yes. I, my exposure to her at a young age was primarily through the Hound of, uh, or the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, uh, where she oh. was opposite Basil Rathbone and also, um, mm -hmm her work on um uh with one of the jack benny films and so to me to watch her transition and her fearlessness anytime i now watch her on a on screen in a movie before she takes that transition i'm immediately thinking uh -huh. like this is like just one more lesson she's learning before she gets in front of a cam or behind a camera like this is just one more lesson she's learning like one more thing that she's taking in <laughs> In her TV series with Howard Duff called Mr. Adams and Eve. It ran uh, during the mid-50s, and she she showed that she could do comedy. I mean, this had been a dramatic noir actor for years and then became the director because the director left the scene, as you know. And here she is in the comedy, you know, week after week. She's very funny. Yeah. And she's not, she's not the... There's, 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 I think she was fully aware of where her abilities would be able to lie in order to succeed in the business that she wanted to for that most part. Um, but we could, we could run off the list all day, but when we were discussing, uh, the, the discussion point of today's main discussion, obviously we've discussed show business and Joan Davis. And I kind of want to give the listeners, and if you want to assist, I would love for you to assist me with this because you are much more the expert than I am on this, um, to tell Joan's story. Because I think that um, people listening to this, the film we're talking about today is not readily available. You can find it mm -hmm. on YouTube with a very, very poor shoddy quality. Yes. Uh, this is a film that could stand with some repairing. Um, there, there is, uh, we'll talk a little bit about it in the plot. There is a scene that you will not be able to see in this YouTube version because it has been removed. You know, uh, the, the scene in question deals with subject matter that we've talked about before on this show and probably won't stop talking about because it's sadly all over these movies of the past. Um, but, Joan Joan is born in 1907 in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And she worked through the gamut from vaudeville to film, radio, television. Yes. She hit everything. <laughs> yeah. And one of the first slapstick comedians. Yeah. That's the thing that I was stunned by because I didn't, I, I don't get to hear a lot about slapstick comedians of vaudeville. Um, <laughs> and I, I was, I think like the evidence of her slapstick within show business to me was mainly just watching how she moved. She had uh, yeah. the, the intent of somebody who knows beat by beat where to move, how to move like blocking is essential in film. And she, she nails it to the point where I'm just like, I could see her pulling off like the most insane stunts right now. <laughs> she did. You know, I have to tell you that when I was a kid, her name was in the telephone directory in Los Angeles. And I called her. I mean, talk about crazy nerve. <laughs> uh, I married Joan was on TV at the time. And I, I hadn't, 
I don't think I had seen show business yet, but I was such a big fan. I called her because I knew from the movie magazines that in vaudeville, she had done an act with her husband, Cy Wills, Mm -hmm. in which she slid across the stage on one heel. What? I know. And so I wanted to ask her, how did you do that? And of course, she talked about practice and lots of falls and, you know, that, 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 that. But there's no film of that. I would love to see a film of her doing that. I want a documentary trying to recreate that now, because if we don't have the footage, we need to recreate it somehow. <laughs> yes, yes. That was her stock in trade. I mean, she did a lot of slapstick things in I Married Joan uh, with that show. By the way, you know, the woman who played her sister on the program was actually her daughter. <laughs> they said something about ego <laughs> a little bit. Oh God! It <laughs> <laughs> looked like so that was that was easy to, to imagine her being her sister. It's, <laughs> it's like you know maybe she's being economical, going like you know what I know how I can save some money. Good <laughs> <laughs> thing they they were they're really very good. You know Joan didn't have she was in a lot of movies. I'm not sure that that was her forte. I think probably vaudeville had been really of course like Eddie Cantor where they get their start. And the TV show, I think, was the peak of her career in many ways. She had a wonderful career on radio, too. I don't know if you've heard any of her I've never, shows. So I've never heard any of her shows, but I was interested to see that she was a regular on this Time to Smile program. So I need to go back and hear more of Cantor's programs to see if I have listened to Joan Davis and just don't remember it. But, she had a new show. She, and I was the Seal Test Hour or something like that. I can't bring it back right now, but... Uh, she was, you know, Hooper ratings, what they had then. She was number one, number two, number three, many weeks. Oh, I have it here. The Seal Test Village Store. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, and see, like, that's, uh, to me, like, the fact that she was dominating all these mediums, when I've looked at people's history with being able to do all of that, I took stock of what I was reading about Joan versus what I've read about most other personalities with the exceptions uh, with the exception of Gracie Allen. Hmm. Joan Davis is probably the only woman that I've read of in regards to having success in all these mediums. Yeah. Um, and Gracie had a little help. Well, yeah, she, <laughs> so a lot of what she did was done reluctantly. Really. If you hear her interviews toward the end of her life, she was pretty happy it was done. Yeah. She, she, there is a point of exhaustion and I've, I'm a big Burns and Allen fan. And so mm-hmm. to know Gracie's story to me is, is, is one of, there's a lot of heartbreak there. And, um, as I've gotten older, my perception of how that heartbreak is perceived by me has changed. Um, but the, the, you, you brought up a good point about film because there is one thing that I wanted to bring up about show business and I would be curious to see how this extends because the only other film that I've seen Joan in that I know of for a fact is Hold That Ghost with yeah. Bud and yeah. Lou. Um, and I think that's a, that's a testament more to the, the popularity of Abbott and Costello being exposed so much. But there's mm-hmm. no Joan Davis box set. There's no there's nothing there's nothing in the way of celebrating her legacy the way the, the way it should, given the gamut that she ran. And, and and I'm curious to know from your point of view, did like did, knowing that she had this rocky of a roller coaster and whatnot, 
do your story indicates that she still wants to perform like there's there's this spark that's still there oh sure i think that's true of all the women uh, that i've written about it's never over i mean their whole lives have been focused on creating fame i mean that's what it was about you know and their identity and uh, adulation and when it's over i mean who are you then yeah and I got this. I got this sense from from the story in particular, and then kind of assessing it from me. And, and feel free to tell me if I'm wrong on this. Um, mm. There was a sense to me that Joan Joan loved Eddie, but I don't believe Joan was explicitly using trying to utilize Eddie for a, a career advancement. There was a genuine affection. It it seems. Oh, absolutely. No, I don't think so either. At that point, now, you know, this was fiction, right? So yeah, uh, they did have an affair, as far as we know. It was during show business, and mm -hmm. they made another picture a few years later. And I think by the time that second film was made, they were done. Mm -hmm. But in my story, uh, they aren't. I mean, they've been going forever. By the way, in order to do this story, I live in the Palm Desert, California area, and they each had homes in Palm Springs. In fact, the story takes place at her home. Yeah, in Palm and, and the story describes it as that they were like minutes away from each other by car. Right? And they were. I mean, I, I drove by to, to, to see. In fact, one day I drove by her house, which I had done before, and the workmen were in there and it was all open. And I'm so tempted to go in and look around to see if my story was accurate, you know, because you make this stuff up, right? Right. But I, I didn't. I said, come on, you know, Pam, this is fiction. It doesn't have to be <laughs> true to life. Yeah. It, well, and there's there's a sense of, I think that like one of the benefits of how your novel operates is, is that it is not, um, the, the legends of show business have themselves set themselves up for some form of interpretation to carry on the, like um, uh, one of my friends Laura Leibowitz has a great saying about print the legend like it's the constant phrase that's utilized when it comes to a lot of vaudevillians and I I I get this I guess to me part of when I see Joan's story it's there's it's not so much a legend is that everybody kind of basically tells a lot of it flat on its face so it's just mm -hmm. like she never got a chance to have a legend and what your story does is give her a semblance of that um but it also doesn't uh lie like the even even a fiction story has the ability to tell the truth or lie and yes and your story tells a truth an inherent truth about even if even as the as it was ex ex explained that the story carries on the affair you still get a sense of not just joan you also get a sense of eddie Cantor as a person which yes that was my intention sort of sub Rosa. I mean, the story is about her basically, but he wasn't exactly a prince. You know what no. I'm saying? no. And, and it, it wouldn't, it doesn't surprise me. I know that I, I, so I guess th this is the part of the show where I expose my fanboyisms that I do have <laughs> with Cantor versus a generation that might not know who Cantor is. Cantor, yeah. Cantor is not just a character in Boardwalk Empire guys. Cantor mm -hmm. is a consummate vaudevillian comedian singer, all a, very much a personality of the era that I don't think it would be unfair to say was a contemporary and equal to Al Jolson, who is held as the standard. 
I agree. And I agree. and he now, <laughs> unlike Jolson, I tend to believe Eddie's popularity more than Jolson's. <laughs> but that's well, Eddie did a lot of good in his life. You know, he was one of the founders of the March of Dimes, for mm-hmm. instance. You know, worked with eradicating polio. And, you know, both Eddie and George Murphy were uh, presidents of uh, Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. So they were very politically active on opposite sides of the continuum. Yeah, because Cantor was a lifelong Democrat and uh, was uh, a big supporter of Adelaide Stevenson in 52. And I I think that. I th- but, but there is a there's a part of Eddie's story that I found interesting in regards to Joan's story because by the time they start working together together Eddie is not the same amount of popular that to my mind that he would have been 10 to 20 years earlier. You're um, right. That's why he threw in that Ziegfeld number, I'm sure to remind people, "Hey, I used to be able to really do good things." Yeah. I'm kind of on on my fumes here, but you know, I'm doing what I can because he's bouncing around as though he's this 20 year old in show business. Yeah. And, and, and he's kind of right there. And the Ziegfeld follies that you and the Ziegfeld follies that you mentioned, the, the musical comedy in question is Whoopi. And it's yeah. this along with Kid Boots are a lot of what skyrockets him. Um, the scandals. There are a whole bunch of shows in the 20s that he was famous for. Yeah. Make it snappy. Um, Broadway brevities of 1920. Banjo mm-hmm. Eyes. Um, yeah. I think Banjo Eyes is the one that we know the most because Banjo Eyes is also a terminology for Eddie Cantor himself. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, he also was, as discussed, there is a scene in show business that is um, uh, Eddie Cantor was more than known to be a blackface performer. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, like yeah. And he he and Burt Williams uh, did a lot of uh, blackface together um, and other forms of comedy for a couple of years. And I will tell you, like we'll get into the plot of show business here in, in a second, but in regards to that scene, because mm-hmm. it is abhorrent to look at the scene on its own face because you are watching him and George Murphy, both in blackface oh. sing, singing. Oh. Di- yeah. Yeah. Singing Dinah, um, yeah. which is a song that I, I said I don't like Bing Crosby that much, but I will still listen to Bing Crosby, and I like Dinah. So to see them performing that song, <laughs> blackface, was very discouraging. <laughs> um, now, but that, but that being said, I am of a generation that knew right knew pretty much from as as early as I could think that blackface was wrong. Yes, um, and so my perception of seeing that anytime I see it. Uh, really comes in the form of oh geez, and just rolling my rolling my head and shaking myself, trying to make sure I'm actually seeing what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think blackface is is a belongs in a time capsule. You know, I think you you can watch it if you understand the context in which it occurred, where our society was in terms of uh, equal rights yeah. for women. For God's sakes, I mean, women were people. So, yeah, you you, know, you brought that up in the intro to your book about women not being able to own property, not being able to, oh yeah, 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 yeah. the permissions that they would need, and that's like that's always a good reminder, I think, for people when we talk about women's rights because I'm not, I'm I'm by no means an expert on this, and I'm learning from people whether they be Pam or my previous guests like Olivia, where to me 
you know, I'm trying to gauge the actual history of this and the, 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 the evidence is stacking up to the point of like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and and uh, you, know, you have to watch things like The Honeymooners uh, with Jackie Gleason, who threatens his wife with violence and people in the audience laugh hysterically. Mm-hmm. Or even an I Love Lucy, where Ricky will ball up his fist and she'll cower and everybody thought how funny that was. Well, we still watch I Live Lucy and we still watch The Honeymooners because we understand that we know better now. Right. <laughs> That's not so funny anymore. It is It is very tough to watch. And As a laugh line, you know, it just doesn't play now. Yeah, it's it's a... Uh, uh, there's a the show Futurama addressed it really well. Um, I think by just saying it flat on its face, they're going through a, uh, a an amusement park on the moon, and they talk about there was once a man, a man with a dream to go to the moon, and uh, they show a robotic Ralph Cramden going one of these days, Alice, bang, zoom, straight to the moon, and uh, one of the people who lived in the past and was brought to the future goes like, that's not an astronaut. It's a TV comedian. And he was just using space travel as a metaphor for beating his wife. So yeah. they just say it on its face. 1999, we're finally having to address this after how many years? <laughs> just... I think blackface is the same way. I mean, there are you know, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland did a blackface number. Was yes. Like, um, I believe that's Babes and uh, Babes on Broadway. Yeah. Babes in arms. Babes in arms. Babes in arms. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and again, you put it in a context. It doesn't mean that you approve of it or accept it, but in the context of what they were doing with their talent, um, you know, the, the song in show business, Dinah, was wonderfully choreographed by Nick Castle, by the way, who choreographed some very big musicals in showbiz. Mm-hmm. I should say. Um, and if you can appreciate the artistry and understand what's going on, it's, and I, and I understand that. And it, for me, like I, I tend to take these films in with preparation in advance. Um, I've been doing some more research on Eddie Rochester Anderson. So I went back to the movie Honolulu, which I hadn't watched in a while. And Eleanor Powell's number in that, um, when it comes to show business, that really is the biggest effrontery that the film possesses. The remainder of this film, I will tell you that I'm glad you introduced me to this film because it was interesting to watch a movie not too remo- not too far removed from vaudeville, like right in the 40s when vaudeville is not as prevalent and the revival that it gets within the fifties mainly comes in the form of biopics about Jolson Cantor or other figures uh-huh. um, or doing MAME. But the, uh, this movie felt very honest about vaudeville uh, in a way that yeah. doesn't seem, it doesn't romanticize it the way I thought it would. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the context that I've had for this of, as of late has been this, the story of the Marx brothers but Cantor's story too, and you know, being being essentially orphaned or like his early history is very very like hard to suss out because it seems like there's 500 different stories about how he got his name and. <laughs> but the him going from the 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 story opens up with George Murphy already being a big act, um, in the form of uh, George Doan, and. 
Eddie Martin, played by Eddie Cantor, is a nervous amateur that George springs to the front, forefront of success with yeah. with a scene that I really love because it does show Eddie Cantor's ability on his feet. You can understand why this guy was a was a hit on stage. Yeah, and the the I love the fact that George keeps telling them to move the bag more and try to keep. <laughs> Let's see yeah. how many times we can kill Eddie Cantor right now. <laughs> and of course, that's very true to life. I mean, that is how they got bad performers off the stage was they swung a bag at him and knocked him over or they threw tomatoes at him from the audience. I mean, it was brutal. They, they weren't in They had the, the hook, too. I love how he handles yeah. the hook. Yes. The hook was a nice touch because I always know the hook because you watch enough Looney Tunes in your life. You see that hook. (laughs) But um, probably have the hook applied to him in his early days, too. Yeah. And actually, it's funny because that one of those moments, a lot of moments in this film remind me of a particular Bugs Bunny cartoon. I think it's Showbiz Bugs where Bugs Bunny tells his life story. Uh, to a reporter, and amongst them is him teaming up with Elmer Vo- Elmer Fudd in vaudeville, <laughs> and and it has the great line of just him. They're doing the you know the MC and the interlocutor bit where Bugs Bunny basically just goes like, "I give up, Mister Fudd. Why?" <laughs> um, but this but this particular story also like I mean if we're going by billing logic george is your lead role here really um eddie Cantor gets the name above the bill because he's producing this film um and they all use their real first names which is a riot i mean that certainly wasn't done back then no but it was it was helpful for me to identify because <laughs> eddie's pretty eddie's pretty easy to suss out i don't know if you know this but he's got very expressive eyes um but uh but everybody, especially because jo- well, especially because Joan was unknown to me, that was the big thing of like, okay, good, I can make sure I'm identifying us clearly here. But they gave her some of the best lines. I think she was so funny in that, just wisecracking. I mean, that was her persona too. You know, the ability to get off a wisecrack and almost uh, under the wire, like mm. nobody reacts, but the audience. <laughs> that's pretty good and everybody just goes right on talking as though she hadn't said something extremely funny <laughs> it, it, her attitude reminded me of eve arden with our armis brooks yeah absolutely um, yes. which that that's been my I, I used to be a big lucy fan when i was a kid and now i'm much more of an eve arden person i, I tend to go to there but her jones work here is is you know, like the, the one thing that I uh, I tend to point out within these shows of just like certain outdated tropes within romantic relationships and movies and this one of like, you know, like needing a man and whatnot. Now, in the case of this film, it is really adorable watching those two interact primarily because the story between George and uh, Constance becomes incredibly dark quicker than i thought it would <laughs> yeah it does it um it's it's almost like it, the, i was trying to like break down this genre because when i think eddie Cantor, i think comedy this flat out says on its face it's a musical and so mm-hmm. i was just the moment we started getting a miscarriage involved in this production that's when i was just like oh wow this is uh this is 
a hell of a movie for Eddie Cantor to be producing. <laughs> yeah. uh, gutsy, really, for its time. Yeah. We talked about with um, To Each His Own about the way that movie breaks a lot of, or or at least shifts the gears a little bit more towards talking about tough subject matter because that movie is unflinchingly honest for what it is doing. And mm -hmm. this film in particular, like, it's it's right on its face when you get when you get to that moment and i mean jumping ahead a little bit here you know when that scene happens the movie takes a good tonal shift for 20 minutes where the character of george who is normally fun easygoing you know lighthearted constantly hitting on connie to an annoying and offensive degree <laughs> there there's a lot of no means no here <laughs> Well, there was another um, kind of mysterious part of the film for me, too, even seeing it recently, but it was certainly when I was a kid, and that is the four of them are in vaudeville or burlesque, and they're saving up to to uh, put together a special act, you know, big, big time. Mm -hmm. And once they get to their $5,000, whatever it was, he sends it off to his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> because she's been in an accident. Excuse me? Yeah. Have you touch with your sex girlfriend while you're courting connie what's going on here yeah george george's george's relation idea of how the relationship structure works is 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 uh, is architecture that no known architecture would a uh, architect would approve of like this this is the most unstable wobbly house i've ever seen it's yeah. it's it's to give to give the audience a perspective which i'm hoping that you've watched the movie beforehand on this to kind of understand what we're talking about, because first of all, the main plot of this film, it's not like a to each his own where you're every single moment is like crucial to the next. It is very episodic in certain elements of this film. Mm -hmm. There's not a, there's not a thematic through line apart from the element of show business itself. The title, the title is the thematic. And so it can go anywhere it wants to, because there's a specific arc that entertainment movies of this era per, uh, go through. And, as Pam alluded to, George is constantly two-timing every single person he's involved with romantically. And yeah. it and it's not I I mean, the the one that threw me off is there's a scene where they're uh already in the middle of their vaudeville act, but they're not they're not getting paid the highest amount, but they're apparently they're still able to get billing and bookings and while they're dancing on the stage, George is asking Connie to marry him for what's conceivably the 100th time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> and for the 100th time while on stage, she's going, no, like what? <laughs> we had this discussion in Des Moines, Dubuque. <laughs> and you're telling me that you, you won't stop this. Meanwhile, the I like the flip, though, the flip side of it. As I said before, you know, obviously the trope of a woman needing a man is, you know, it's 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 of its time. But to watch Joan Pine for Eddie is very adorable to watch. It is. It is. It's not she turns to the camera for, you know, something you don't see very often in that era where she speaks right to the camera about how she feels about him. Yeah, that was a really I will tell you right now with that moment in the film broke me up laughing. Cause I was just like, that is a wonderful way to end their particular story. Because if, if I were to review this film, the one criticism that I would have of this movie is that George and Connie's story is overtly melodramatic, but yeah. 
watching uh eddie and joan though was such a treat where i'm just like no 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 take uh, put george and connie away for a second i need more of these two plays they were like tennis players you know they would bat it back and forth the the, the repartee between mm. them was fabulous to watch yep and their banter is you know I, I wouldn't classify it within the same realms of screwball per se but there is a there's a hominess to it. There's something that feels very um, warm about it that it's almost like you're watching a real romance blossom, which as alluded to from history here, you know, it's, it's very, it's very fascinating to watch that, especially like, I love how the story does manage to flip perspectives on different people because one of the most hilarious scenes involving Cantor alone involves him trying to pitch George on a new song and not leaving uh, George and Connie alone after they've been married. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, and this is also where we get Alabama bound. Um, uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, one thing that people might've noticed if they're watching the movie is Eddie Cantor claps his hands a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's his trademark that, along with his eyes. That's what he does. Yeah. That's his, um, you know, if you, if you've ever seen a Looney Tune cartoon where they make fun of him and he goes like, if you know Susie, like oh, I know Susie, like that's that's the bit. That's that's his shtick, and it was really cool to see it on film and to watch it incorporated into this moment where he is clearly interfering with a romance and in such a, I think a very well well written and well executed way. <laughs> I, I agree. I think the only writing glitch for me is in the character of Connie. Mm. I, I think she's underdeveloped. Um, we don't really have a sense of her. She's very one-dimensional to the point where her only importance in the movie ends up being that when they have to convince her to get back together with George, her only character trait is that she remembers the wonderful things that George did. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very... Uh, I have this weird feeling and I would, I wish there were more. I, the one book that I now need to look, look through is slow to slow fade to black for more info on RKO at this time. But there is a, there, there is a, a part of me that wonders if Eddie Cantor decided actively to put himself to the side at some point because he got scared about him about himself not being able to pull like the weight of the film. Cause it seems like George Murphy, no matter how well they work together on stage, because there are moments on the vaudeville stage where uh-huh. they are performing beautifully together. I um, agree. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Dinah with the baggage that it has, they are working mm-hmm. well together. And, yep. but it seems like Cantor almost begrudgingly has the melodrama going on in the background because you can tell he really wants to be on the camera. He wants to be on camera. He wants attention. Um, so it's almost like a wonder of like, why being the producer, like who, who insisted that you be the side character while being top billed? That, that, that's the one thing that threw me about cancer because there's, uh, I always point to a clip from Jack Benny to explain my, impre- uh, my, uh, interpretation of Cantor is that when he came on as a surprise guest on Jack's program with Fred Allen, mm-hmm. um, he comes out of Mr. Uh, George Washington Hill's closet and um, tries to pitch himself as being the new star of the show. When Jack puts his arm out at the very end to explain where he lives, 
Cantor ad libs, you're blocking me. (laughs) (laughs) And, and you could see Jack cracking up because obviously these are a bunch of vaudeville veterans standing around each other. Something's going to happen. But, um, but to, but that's always been my impression of Cantor is what a ham. (laughs) Uh, And I'm pretty sure he was firmly in charge of the production of show business. One of his close friends was the director, for instance, Edward L. Marin. Um, they were they were good friends and did a lot of projects together, and I'm sure he approved the the script. Uh, you know, this was his show basically. Yeah. Now RKO, as you said, was in disrepair at this time. You know, they had the '30s with uh, Citizen Kane and uh, all the Rodgers and Astaire movies and early Hepburn, um, and they were. You know, there was no Louis B. Mayer in charge. Selznick was there for a while, then he left, and people came and went. And I think it was a vacuum in a way that Cantor could squeeze in and do show business, probably without a lot of supervision, in my guess. Yeah, the the only saving grace that uh, RKO has in the period that a movie like Show Business comes out is when Charles Kerner gets Val Luton to run the horror unit because that's what gives them a steady profit for yeah. a good couple of years and beyond Luton because RKO as a studio it's funny that a move it makes perfect sense that a that a company founded off of the off the auspices of the Keith Albee Orpheum yeah <laughs> uh would would make a movie about vaudeville <laughs> Well, they were long past their roots by that time. Oh yeah, yeah, they were much more in the pocket of uh, of the elements of of radio itself. Like the the logo has nothing to do with vaudeville; it has everything to do with radio. Um, and I will say that Marin, the director, he'll never not have a place in my heart because he made The Invisible Agent, which is a wonderful, a wonderful uh, spy comedy uh, from the Universal era where uh, the Invisible Man fights Nazis. So that's 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 a fun time for me at the movies. Um, But the yeah, his. I will say he directs the heck out of this thing because it's much more vibrant and active than I initially thought it would be, given the fact that it's a comedy. Um, it is a lot of movement. And it's, and I said, some of that is Nick Castle, the choreographer, but a lot of it is the direction. Every, the camera's moving, the people are moving, you know, the songs are coming quick. Uh, my favorite song is then, and it had to be you. I had never heard it until it was on million dollar movie. You know, I was eight or nine years old. <laughs> it ran every night on channel nine in Los Angeles. And I heard that song and I just loved it. In fact, as a performer, I would often perform it because I just, and they do a nice job of it. You spoke about performing. I wanted to, I would love to sidetrack for a second and have you talk a little bit about that because you aren't just coming at this from an enthusiast. Like you've experienced elements of show business as well as anybody else and, and perform. Uh-huh. Yeah. What What was the, was that like from an early age that you uh, got the impetus to perform? Just well, on and off, you know, I had a career as a shrink and that, uh, and even during those years, I was a media psychologist. Uh, you mentioned being a ham, Eddie Cantor. I'm I'm only a short a short second to Eddie Cantor in hamness. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't take much. Um, when I moved out of the practice and because of managed care, I went jumped into show business big time. I did films. I did that. Uh, when I was in uh, college, I was the first woman disc jockey in Los Angeles. And uh, when I was performing as a 
and a mature adult. I was doing CDs, I was doing commercials, I was doing you know shows and and things like that, and singing with bands. And it was it was great. For, it's a lot of work. Oh yeah, you know, a lot of travel. You know, I I longed for that studio system sometimes though. You know, where you get up at five in the morning and a car comes to pick you up and they dress you and they quaff you and they put makeup on and you say lines and, you know, with handsome men or good looking women or whatever. And then you go home and you don't have to travel. That just sounds so nice to me. I would do a little indentured servitude. I think if I could go back to those days, it's consistency that doesn't exist (laughs) anymore. Exactly. Exactly. To me, it's a double-edged sword because obviously the, the, the contract system was, terrifying in the uh, respects that it were the impetus of it getting dismantled. Well, I grew but, up in, that, in the middle of all that, you know, in a suburb of Los Angeles. And uh, I went to school with movie stars, you know, and kids of movie stars. So it wasn't, even though my parents were very blue collar, I mean, they didn't do any of that, but I knew people who did. And that was enough for me. You know, yeah. That just tweaked my fantasies up the wazoo. I just never quite got over that. I might be discovered, you know, if I walk by Schwab <laughs> drugstore or, you know, down Hollywood and Vine, someone's going to look at me and say, her, her, sign her up now. Yeah, that's, and, and I think that that's like, I think that exists today, but obviously through the social media realm, it, it exists under an entirely different auspice. And, you sure. know, when I go to Hollywood, when I go to Hollywood now, if I ever go to that city, you know, like the the image that I get of it is... A, a weird shell of what it used to be. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's not. Um, it's not that it's devoid of its heritage, but an example is is that I. I mean, I've I've come to know within the last year or so of locations that like, and I I wish I could remember a specific one, but just the bottom line of like certain locations and addresses being at the center epicenter of actual like historical moments, and there's no plaque yeah. for them. There's no. Oh there's no dedication to something like that happening in a town that's founded on that particular industry. It has removed itself further from its roots than you can possibly be while still being the epicenter of it for, I mean, I've equated now like Hollywood is the, the city of Hollywood is the corporate offices for making movies, but it is no longer the place you make movies. I think that's why I've stuck with uh, the golden age of Hollywood as long as I have, because I, I feel married to that time because I was a child back then. Yeah. And I, 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 movies, could, you know? I could imagine so, especially knowing that you saw a, much of this unfold through your childhood, that, that there's, mm-hmm. it's a difference between me who's looking at it vicariously through first Looney Tunes and then radio and then like mm-hmm. lear- learning about it bit by bit. And, Oddly enough, as time has gone on, for all that we've lost in maintaining the history, we've also discovered things we never knew existed and dispelled myths, whether it's like, I mean, the the, the example I'll always point to is the, the notion that Duck Soup was a failure at the box office and mm-hmm. Robert Bader's book on the on the Marx Brothers pointing to the fact of like, no, it actually made money, but they left Paramount not because of Duck Soup being a failure. They were they were suing Paramount, and that was a condition of their deal to settle with Paramount is that they got one more movie out of them, and then they would be able to leave as free agents. Yeah, that happened a lot, I think. 
that that's that sounds it's it sounds like a lot of what I would imagine most of the comedians went through because I see them shifting studio after studio and constant yeah. rates. That's right. Um, that's right. But I want to get back to Joan a little bit <laughs> here because the the boiling point of uh, of this movie in terms of it representing vaudeville and where you can watch Joan really shine in a movement sense in certain respects is when they are first on vaudeville doing, I want to, I want a girl just like the girl that married Daryl dad. I agree. I think that's one of the best uh, musical in the, in the film. It is so well directed. <laughs> I am flabbergasted by the movement. And like the moment I see, Murphy and Eddie Cantor wearing fake mustaches as motorists. I know I'm in for a fun ride. <laughs> and it feels very authentic, doesn't it? Like you're watching this, you know, at the palace or something in New York. Yeah. It, this movie does a good job at putting you into vaudeville in a way that I don't think other movies tend to do. Because I feel like when we talk about vaudeville and we present vaudeville, I've seen it more presented within modern films as dingy or, you know, yeah. more seedy. I think the closest that ever came to making it seem more elegant was uh, Richard Attenborough's film Chaplin. Um, there is well, burlesque was seedy. I mean, and that's where they came from. You know, in show business, you see them moving from burlesque to vaudeville. Yeah, and and that was seedy, but vaudeville really wasn't. It was, uh, you know, nine acts a day, <laughs> seven days. <laughs> Getting on trains, missing meals, <laughs> right. having yeah. having no roots whatsoever, and yeah. so, and actually that you brought up a good point. Like burlesque and vaudeville get, get commingled together; they are very separate entities. They are very different. The I would say that vaudeville is classier by comparison in terms of its perception. Mm -hmm. um, now, whether or not you choose either or is your preference, but like. Bud and Lou would be easily relegated to vaudeville, but then you'd have to be like, no, 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 it's burlesque. Like, and when you listen to their routines, you understand that it's burlesque. Um, sure, absolutely. Well, vaudeville was what uh, performers aspired to do, you know, to get a contract on the circuit and travel all around the country and do one night stands and two night stands. And I mean, that was the peak of success really yeah. before at the time when movies were young. Yeah, and you mentioned um, her husband at this time, uh, yeah. Cy Wills. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to find much on him. What do, what can you tell us about their their marriage and in particular their their act um, or their their working together? I don't know much about it. There isn't much written. Um, they were married a long time. I mean, given the longevity of marriages and show business. They were together 14, 15 years, maybe. Yeah, that 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 stunned me because like that because it they divorce in forty eight, which it's uh it comes off of the release of uh, if you know Susie, which also has her with Cantor again. Uh, that was their second film together. I suspect they were separated long before that, and maybe Joan divorced him because she hoped for more with Eddie. I mean we can only speculate about things like that, but there was no reason to divorce him at that point. No. Cause I'm sure they weren't together. Yeah. And I, I, I get this. I, I will tell you that like, there's like this, the trajectory that she ended up having, uh, if she seemed to get right into films pretty quick because she starts off in Max Senate shorts. Yes. And, and yeah. 
that that's a that's a breeding ground that I love exploring from the different elements of it. Um, the uh, by the time this is released, we'll have already released our episode on "It's a Gift" with W.C. Fields, yeah, and the okay. and the Keystone shorts that he did with Senate ended up defining his uh, characteristics on stage. Um, and arguably refining them because of because the dentist the dentist film is is <laughs> he's a monster in that movie. <laughs> you could do a whole whole uh, issue on uh, Max Sennett. I mean, he was a pioneer at the time. Uh, the first custard pies were thrown <laughs> in his movies, and it was Mabel Norman and Charlie Chaplin and Fatty Arbuckle. I mean, they were all there with him at the beginning. Yeah, and he and. I mean the way the uh, the way he's been presented in several different elements. He was he could be a rather difficult man, but he was yes. And, I think that's agreed upon. Yeah, and he he uh, but he didn't. Uh, it didn't stop him from innovating what then would get perfected and polished down the line. That's right. And that's like one of those knowing that she was as successful up to this point. You know, you see the culmination of a lot of her experience in show business. It's yeah. it's not just the patter. It's not just the dance. She also learned how to act along the way in a way that was dramatic. And her character is not given many moments to be tender, per se. Right. She's she's a master of timing. Yeah. And really what you're seeing in show business, it's uh, like a master class in timing. Yeah. It's very much... Like it's similar to watching something that Jack would do, um, and watching like the time, like noting the responses. Now they, their delivery is a little different, but there's there you, there's a risk. Timing in comedy comes in different forms. It de- it depends on exactly like what you're attempting to to achieve. And I like how she takes a moment a little bit before she responds to Eddie in certain places, like. <laughs> Just these small little moments where she is really like, you can tell that she's either thinking of the response or she already has it, but she's giving a moment to br- like to to really let him have it. It's like she's teeing it up. Yeah, she and is, you're waiting for it because you know it's coming. She's not a she is not afraid to whack the golf ball at at Eddie's head verbally when it comes to that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and it does. And the when the plot. The plot goes along in this show business realm. When they finally get to vaudeville, we have this we have this element of Charles Lucas that we haven't talked about, played by Don Douglas, yeah. who is a Scottish actor who worked in the uh, worked in stage and radio. And amongst the films that he appeared in is The Great Gabo in 1929. And modern listeners might know of Gabo in a sense because of The Simpsons with the Gabo character oh. that got crusty canceled um but he but he is also the man who pretends to marry uh gilda um uh in gilda so he is he is very well known um in in that particular circle here though he is very much the he is one of many cogs in the wheel that are trying to disrupt the love the love stories in this film the other one being nancy (laughs) Nancy just kind of disappears. She goes away quietly. I guess once she has her five thousand, <laughs> she, you know, does her best to get him back. But it's okay if she doesn't get him. Yeah, you know, she, she's kind of just like, I'll take this or leave this. It's like, a, like roll, okay. we'll roll the dice one night. I don't know, maybe the night that my ex husband's about to have his his first kid with his other wife, and yeah, exactly. I'll just exactly. drive him randomly around. <laughs> 
the the you know how you watch an old movie sometimes and you, there's like there's a five minute anticipation period but you already know what's coming anyway like you only yeah. you just you just spot it mm-hmm. that that my moment there came with the moment that he said i'm about to have a kid and i saw nancy on stage and i'm like oh this is this is not good is it <laughs> yeah yeah and you can fight it out and at that point you can write the lines yeah and the 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 scene itself follows is that she drives him to the hospital and <laughs> it yeah. it gets to the point where he's so late that when he sees Constance she is out of it mm-hmm. she is wondering where her husband has been but suspects where he has been yes exactly and then he goes out to ask if he can save the baby. And the nurse flat out says, in a way that I thought was bold, even bolder in a lot of respects than other films we've talked about, was like, we couldn't save your baby. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's not, like, the music treats it, obviously, as the dramatic moment it is. But her, the nurse's delivery is just like, wow, like, they are being very frank. <laughs> yeah, yes. It, no sugarcoating at all. No, no sugarcoating. Like, it, it's kind of, it's almost like you want to like go back in a time machine and ask Eddie Cantor what he was thinking when this script was composed <laughs> because well, he was part of the scene. So maybe he didn't care. Yeah. No. Yeah. Maybe he was just like, no, make it dramatic. I don't care, but <laughs> I'll, I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. I have to clap my hands now at this particular moment, if you don't mind. Um, and yeah. And then that, and then we get thrust into world war one, which I'll be honest, I think we're in world war one here quicker than we are in. It's a wonderful life, or than we are in world war two. And it's a wonderful life. So. I know. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's a drunk. I mean, what, excuse me, wait, do we miss a couple of reels here? How did all this happen? Yeah. They, they, they patch it up through dialogue because like the, the way it shows is actually again through Joan and Eddie and actually you, you the, yeah. the the brilliance of this film, again, with Joan and Eddie, is, is that you actually watch their relationship develop together in a way that is more realistic than most romantic comedies of the era. Mm. Um, there is an actual progression of a relationship moment by moment, because as established before, Joan is asking Eddie to marry her, and she, he keeps refusing. Yes. Um, and But you see their relationship develop to where, by the end of the movie— you know, he is more than willing to, you know, avoid Niagara Falls to be completely alone with Joan. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, the scene where she s- says goodbye to him as he's off to go overseas to entertain the troops, this like beautiful scene where she pulls out, pulls out, I think it's salami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and just like you see this like nice tender moment and you're, you, I kept thinking the whole time, like, this is the movie here. It's George Murphy is not important here. <laughs> right. But um, but then we get to him singing um, a, a wonderful song about how nobody really wants to fight a war. They just want to be with a pretty nurse. And, yeah. <laughs> and it, I don't want to get well. I don't want to get well. I'm in love with a beautiful nurse. Yep. And yeah. and then his he he finds out where George has been in the form of George singing all of a sudden. Like it is very much movie land logic. It It, yeah. it is yeah. unabashedly so. And uh, he goes into this, he goes into this realm that I love about like, you you know, like you are, you are getting the dramatic spiel of what's happened while laying down exposition city. Uh And I, I, 
my brain i i'm like you pam like i i my brain kind of shifted a little bit going like i'm so sorry Wh- where were we and <laughs> and the, the and then by the time he gets back the whole impetus of this plot going forward is we have now learned that constance and uh george are divorced and that she is set to marry charles lucas so mm-hmm. every it's 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 the elements of show business that I love where it's like everybody's hooking up with everybody. So like, there's no, like there's no outside, <laughs> like it's this strange bubble. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Don't end up together. Of course. Yes. They are the happy couple, which, you know, who, who, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> of them, but they were the ones who seemed most normal. Yeah. They, they, I, I and I will, I, I will tell you, there's another funny Eddie alone moment is when he's pretending to be an alcoholic. Oh yeah, yes. Now I'm a, I, I'm three years in recovery myself, mm-hmm. and yeah. so watching this was interesting to see how alcoholism and the cure was portrayed oh, yeah. on film back then, and it's <laughs> you could just talk them out of it. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, no, you, you're the only way he says flat out, the only way for you to uh, get through this is to not have a drink ever again until you get back on stage. <laughs> yes, yes. It's conditional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, and, and also the way he's hilariously hiding bottles around the place. That, that, <laughs> yeah. That's expressive to a fault. But then it's like an old vaudeville skit. Is what it's reminiscent about. And it's shot like and it's shot that way too. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't um it doesn't try to go in for too much coverage. It does try to stay in that wide and medium for the most part. Yeah. yeah. Um but then obviously we get to the finale of the film being Eddie being in Whoopi. Mm-hmm. Now We've talked a lot about William Zeke, uh, like the Zekefield Follies at this time, and mm-hmm. uh, but we don't, uh, we don't always like get f- full into it. Like to be a Ze- in the Zekefield shows was a big deal. Like this was, was not a very big deal. This is a peak. Yeah. The best you can do. And, I mean, and and we, I'm trying to think of the modern equivalent. I've been scratching my head all week about what the actual modern equivalent is because we don't have. Broadway the way it was then. No, not really. But, oh, I don't think there is an equivalent. Yeah, it's not, it it seems like the closest that I could come to is like if you get discovered on a talent show like that has a name reputation and your career takes off from there, but it doesn't seem to do justice to what Ziegfeld accomplished. Um and nor does it do any justice to my mind to what Whoopi was, which it, like what by the time it goes off the stage, it does become an early sound musical filmed in two strip Technicolor, uh-huh. and it gets an Oscar nomination for best art direction. So to see it wind up in show business, mm-hmm. my thing was, I mean, I thought the first thing I thought was shoot in, shoehorned in. Yeah, it felt it felt like that, didn't it? But it is a good example and accessible for people who, let's say, can't afford a copy of Whoopi um, and or any of these Warner Archive titles that exist. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do get to watch and you give they give him plenty of close ups for this, too. Like this is 
this is Eddie's moment here. It is Eddie at his most famous and really at his best in many ways. Yeah, and it almost seems to like, it. it's basically writing the legend out that will be printed. And mm-hmm. when you're watching it, I, I, I guess that the way to encourage people in watching this is just like, because it would be harder to do this with Jolson because Jolson's act itself was, <laughs> it's hard to watch. <laughs> A lot to swallow there. Yeah, a lot to swallow. There are elements of the jazz singer that you can watch that are not hard to swallow, but then there are the other elements that are. And the big thing that Jolson was famous for, its most prominent cinematic image is the problem. (laughs) Um, But Cantor, though, I get it. I do get how you would be entranced by him. Mm -hmm. From a visual standpoint, you know, you could you could obviously say the banjo eyes and the expressions on his face, but like he knew movement, he knew timing. He was yeah. not like some of the best moments of his performance are at the beginning when he is pretending to be scared, mm-hmm. when he mm-hmm. is like a, a shy amateur. Like, and I actually do believe him. I know he's older Eddie Cantor, so it doesn't make logistical sense from the age thing, <laughs> but I kind of don't care. And also. This movie does seem to respect people's ages in a in a weird way cuz they do. They do. Joan is allowed to look as old as she is. Yeah. Cuz yeah, yeah. like if they wanted anybody younger, they would have just cast somebody younger. And it meant, it let me do it let me to wonder about your story in particular because by the time we get to the the way your story folds out and whatnot it does show this, you know, it, it does show the reality of what women were dealing with in that era. But it is interesting to look at some of those past films like this and be like, it's interesting that they were allowed to just be their own age and look, They there's not a, there's not a requirement for makeup. There's not a requirement to look any younger than you are. Well, it's also black and white and it's also low budget. You know, I'm sure that all played into it. You know, in a short story about her and Eddie, um, there's a mention of the movie show business. Yeah. Uh, you know, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. <laughs> the perfect opportunity. I appreciated it because, like, if somebody's reading this for the first time and they haven't heard the movie, they, and they've only listened to this episode on show business, but they haven't seen show business, uh-huh. you know, like, you, you paint a picture of how important that was to her. Um, yes. You know, like, the... Uh, <laughs> I like the line in your book. At least she had the movie one sheet framed on the living room wall to remind her how good she was. She looked at it all the time. And I'm like, that's a that's a nice little touch of the way your story unfolds, because she doesn't. um, You know, it's it's you know, you could you could move into Norma Desmond territory when you talk about this. But I tread lightly here and I'm just like, no, she appreciates and she understands her worth. Yeah, exactly. It, it's not to the point of throwing William Holden into the pool after shooting him. <laughs> I see some of that on the Mary Pickford story. I think that's more uh, Norma Desmond territory. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I'm a sucker for looking for that anytime I can find it. So <laughs> another thing about the Jones story too, is also you mentioned car 54. Where are you? Which that, that warms my heart, but, <laughs> um, uh, but the, uh, but yes, by, by the end of 
show business. I, I'm sorry I diverged us here. Um, but by the time we get to the end of show business, Whoopi is a success. Hooray. Uh, yeah. And both Joan and Eddie and George and Constance get married, pay the mm-hmm. preacher $2, and a scene comes up that I had a question because I am Joan Davis ignorant apart from this film now, but also hold that ghost. Mm-hmm. Were jokes about her appearance a, a regularity? <laughs> oh, yeah. And for any wom- women who were comedians, I mean, women comedians were supposed to be unattractive. And we have the 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 most modern equivalent that we have of how that's been portrayed as either through, like, I mean, I think Phyllis Diller would be the, the shining example of that. Um, but well, the one who did that was uh, Lucy because mm. she's gorgeous. Yeah. She, she broke a, she, it's weird watching her work in her younger years at RKO before she does the show because she, mm. I mean, now I'm not a fan of the movie room service per se, but I, I like watching early Lucy to just see like, where's the talent coming from? Like how early can you spot it? Uh-huh. Um, and, um, but the, but the joke about Joan's appearance here is that she, uh, she would get a kiss from the preacher and instead the preacher kisses Eddie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, Rather than Joan. Which, which is a, a uh, which in itself is, a, is, is, is always a daring image. Anytime you see a man kissing another man, no matter what, I'm just like, I, I understand it's a joke, but dang, I wonder what sort kind of, of fight went on. It ends on a sort of a sexist note as it began on a sexist note. You know, if you recall that George is singing, they're wearing them higher in Hawaii. Oh. All oh. the script going up, 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 up. And that's supposed to be. Cute and funny and amusing and thank, you know thank, sexuality. Thank you for reminding me of that song because this song is is quite a way to open up your movie because the movie does open up with uh, this austerity to vaudeville like it it does treat it very austere like it's like in the annals of history you know the the great show pa- business palaces like this theater and then it goes into that song and I'm like mm-hmm. wow like it's 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 stunning to watch this kind of uh to watch this kind of audacity and then again as you said it does end on that sexist note at the end the one thing i get out of it though is that joan uh joan gets the upper hand by the very end because she does say like you want any money now from now on you come to me yes which is a great line Um, yeah she knew her power and she could allow that kind of line to happen yeah it's also emblematic of the times, you know, which I discuss in my book about how women are treated on film and in real life. That was it. Yeah. And what's more, by the time we get the ending, you alluded to it earlier. We break the fourth wall. <laughs> I'm crazy about that man. Yeah. Yeah. And we end the movie. And this movie was actually, in terms of its response, me finding reviews of this film in particular um, was difficult, but I did look into the note that it was actually a profit maker for RKO. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't think it was such a low budget. <laughs> it <Yeah>. had to be. <laughs> yeah. When you have the low budget that it did, like a, a profit of a profit of $805,000 is not yeah. small potatoes, but in order to do that. Pretty good. Yeah. Especially like, cause the movie does have scale to it, but it is very aware of where its scale is going to be. And that's going to be the theater or mm-hmm. it's going to be a house. 
or a living room or an apartment. Um, so in a lot of sense, it's it's a movie with scale for the places it's going to be. It provides scale to the locations and the environment, but it doesn't provide scale on a it's this is not a david lean movie for example <laughs> no no um, well but, and the, the big scene that you see with the four of them in the little club you know where he gets up and sings to her and they dance together I and mean, that is so charming yeah and it's one of three clearly expensive sets because it's that one yeah. it's dinah and then it's whoopee yes and uh that first one, as we talked about, is my favorite because it is an example of vaudeville, um, mm -hmm. which I mean, like the, there's this element of I think when people want to look at what vaudeville was, we thankfully have the Vitaphone shorts that are restored. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in fact, if you want we talked about Burns and Allen earlier. If you want to watch early Burns and Allen off the cusp of vaudeville going into radio, you get lamb chops out of that short film. Uh -huh. um, and uh, which is which is a cute number. And um, I always like watching I, I, I like watching the way both of them dance because <laughs> there's a line in one of the radio shows about him being twinkle tones, twinkle toes burns. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, that is a delight to listen to. But in terms of this film in particular, um, I wanted to ask a couple of questions as a wrap up because there's there's a lot packed in here and what what's wonderful about what you brought us today was not only did you bring us an important subject matter in regards to the modern context which is what we will end with but before that you brought vaudeville to this show which hasn't really existed apart from being mentioned on and off um you know looking at it now do you do you as a person who has lived through this through this era of seeing what Hollywood was and also now writing about it and being a historian and digging deep into this do you what 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 is your impression of vaudeville's importance and how it was essential to a lot of the entertainment that we saw either in the golden age of Hollywood or today I wish I'd been alive for it it would have been so great to see performers uh, really getting their start. You know, I wrote a chapter actually on Jack Benny's vaudeville years for a book about him, an anthology about Jack Benny. And I just dug into it very deeply. And I wanted to go back, you know, it's like I wanted to be in a time warp somehow where you push a couple of buttons and you go back to about 1928, maybe 27, when vaudeville was at its peak. And the Ziegfeld Follies were happening every year uh, on the roof of, you know, the Amsterdam Theater in New York. But it was just a, a wonderful time. And I think it set the table, really. It certainly did for film, because a lot of early film, uh, particularly the once it got to be talkies, was old vaudeville acts. Yeah. It's for film. And actually that's and, and, and you brought that up is interesting because like the Vitaphone shorts that I mentioned earlier, um, there's always an astute observation that I <laughs> It, it makes it makes my heart sink, but I understand how it's going to happen no matter what. Is like the vaudevillians who filmed those Vitaphone shorts at Astoria were essentially burying themselves. <laughs> yeah, and they they didn't know because the, the medium was so new. Yeah, it's it's devastating to watch in retrospect because you know obviously Burns and Allen made it out, and yeah. as did yeah. Baby as did Baby Rosemary, uh, <laughs> who. Um, <laughs> talk talk about somebody who did everything um uh, one of the 
stories, by the way, in my book was based on a comment she made in her documentary. She said, um, I lie in bed at night and I go over my act. And I thought, wow, I mean, doesn't that say it all? This is a 70 something year old woman at this point who is still reliving her years on stage. Yeah. And she would be a good person to talk about down the line because she literally worked in everything up until the yeah. last, what, what, when did she die? Was that two, th- two, three years ago? Yeah. Recently. Sure. Yeah. It's it, it actually, it would have been, yeah, 2018 or 2019 because Tarantino put a mention of her in the script of once upon a time in Hollywood after seeing the documentary about her. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah. And that, that to me is the there's a I wanted to I wanted to bring that from that question about like a person remembering their act mm-hmm. all that time later, because your story about Joan implies elements of that, too. Yes. And obviously you brought up the show business illusion that comes in that short story. Um, I, I want people to pick up this book to read these stories, because I think Pam Pam has done a good job at providing an allegory that I can't speak for ladies everywhere, but I can definitely speak for myself as a person who is looking for uh, an empath's guide (laughs) to how this, uh, how this unfolded for a lot of people. This is a good resource because Joan is a character in this story. Um, We're not talking about the actress right now herself. We're talking about the, the Joan in your story. Yes. She, she's, as, as we stated up front at the top of the show, she's an alcoholic at, at, by this point in her life. And the element of your story that amazed me and the twist, by the way, the twist was great. Mm, And I won't, I won't spoil the twist for people, but I will tell you that a lot of, a lot of the emotional impact of this and a lot of the moments where you feel Joan, beyond the shell that she's living in is when she's talking to a fan at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and to my mind, it Joan is em- emblematic, not just of women who are forgotten in Hollywood, but she's emblematic of a lot of entertainers from vaudeville who were forgotten by this point, unless they made it to television or even if they did. Yeah. Even if they did like Milton Berle, was in vaudeville made it to television, mm-hmm. but he also right. had a short shelf life that on television, like his, his reign didn't last as long as people seem to remember it. <laughs> um, but I, one thing that you do also point to in this is that she doesn't, she doesn't have any gumption to give up. Um, that's right. There's always hope. There's always hope. And I do appreciate the the semblance of hope that can be presented in Joan's story. Now, I, I won't story, spoil the story that uh, Pam wrote because you need to pick up this book. But I will tell you about Joan's actual life, if you don't mind. Sure. So following 1948's If You Knew Susie, as we discussed, Joan was a regular on Andy Kander's program. Um she then in 1952 i married joan premieres um where she is the wife of a community judge played by jim backus and the show did not last as long as 
a contemporary comparison of I Love Lucy. And it that's the seems to be the wheelhouse that people put it in the comparison slot with. Mm-hmm. Um, and she by the time it ends in 56, she's approached by ABC to be on to to create the Joan Davis show. Um, and the pilot's not picked up. And it wasn't until the Museum of Radio and Television in New York discovered it and added it to, it, it to the collection that it has now been seen by others. Yeah, I would love to see that. It's um, and that and that and that museum, by the way, the Museum of Radio and Television in New York is a wonderful place to go to if you're visiting New York City, where you can select programs to view. Mm-hmm. That's how I first saw the um, first episode of the Jack Benny Show ever. Um, yeah. because it was at the time this was 2005 and it was not available on DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, but Joan, um, slip, she had been slipping into alcoholism and as, uh, Pam alluded to, she had, uh, problems with her heart. She died very young at the age of 53 of a heart attack in 1961 yeah. in Palm Springs. Yeah. Um, three, two years later, not even three, two years later, her mother, uh and uh daughter and two grandchildren were killed in a house fire in Palm Springs. It's a very sad end to uh the this this legacy in comedy. And I think that the reason that I the reason that we talk about her death in particular here is because I feel ashamed not knowing who she is because of the amount of people that we talk about from a glamorized standpoint. The Joan Davis is somebody that I described as a, uh, a, a, a journeyman. She never got apart from I Mary Joan. It looks as she never like had the same standards of glamor as other comedians or even other actresses, period. Yeah, that's and, true. And the perception of Joan uh, has been written by this narrative of, I'll use the word in full now, so pardon the uh, use of the language, but the perception of her being a controlling bitch mm-hmm. is written under the auspices of the men she worked around who, from every statement that you read and everything that you look at, it tends to point to begrudgment that a woman is leading the leading the charge absolutely no Uh, question and so pam one of my last questions for you is Mm -hmm. that we your your book covers amongst other things the predatory nature of producers misogyny the sexism Mm -hmm. and ageism but the one thing that it uh all culminates under is the lack of power that women possess in this industry yes i want to know even as we have dealt with the reckonings of much of revelation of how little had changed in the studio era of uh, or in the film industry to this day do you see hope for where the industry is going i think it's diversification might be its hope you know the era we're talking about with the five studios and the five white men who were gods in their realm we don't have the equivalent. I mean, there's, there's Amazon, there's Netflix, but there are also hundreds of other uh, producers and directors um, who, are, many of whom are women. Yeah. 
I think as we have more female screenwriters, we're going to have more uh, roles for older women on television and in film. I think as women band together and support one another, there's going to be more opportunities for women. So I do see hope. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the old misogynistic 20s, you know, when Mary Pickford was running her own studio. Actually, it was the last woman in 50 years to run her own studio. Yeah. It's kind of frightening. Yeah, it, so, it's definitely scary. <laughs> yeah, I'm optimistic. I think, uh, you know, if people are aware of the issues and sue people who are in violation of social norms, I, I think we stand a chance of equality. I, I like that hope out of this. And I think that what you've done with your book has provided the necessary examples to show the the, the novices to this knowledge just how bad it was because it's to my mind it's one thing to say that holly golden age hollywood was racist and sexist it's another thing to understand the depths of it because you can't the just aftermath. i mean these stories about women are about the aftermath how how do they survive yeah they've been dumped you know by the show business establishment and how they've and how they've been basically betrayed by the concept of their dreams which yes. which is i think more gut-wrenching than any than anything you can think of because you're you're mentally fudging with somebody's aspirations yes absolutely and, and um and i i think that the 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 goal of this show has been from its start to address the issues as they come up in classic films or even lesser known films to kind of give the instance of it for 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 the last portion of this, um, I think that the big thing that I take away from your book and show business, uh, apart from the history of vaudeville, which is a vast subject in and of itself that has its own form of interweaving of, you know, uh, discrimination and mm -hmm. attitudes um, that, you know, and vaudeville has a shelf life almost uh, like just a little bit longer than radio ended up having in certain respects because the mediums excelled so fast. Yeah. Um, but to me, show business and what it does for Joan is that it like, it, it's this weird opportunity for somebody like Joan Davis in that movie to be an honest version of what her act was, what her persona was and to see it unapologetically even the moments that we talked about where it's, you know, obviously the, the, the more problematic elements of the film, you do get to see a lot of these performers, uh, bare, bare bones. Like this is what they were on stage. You can see why they were famous. Yeah. And with, within that Eddie Cantor is the obvious draw because we have a name attached to him. The, the mm -hmm. goal of this show is also to see like, where do these films of the past end up in today? Um, from a thematic standpoint, show business falls in line with every show business movie you ever see. Like there's rise and falls. There's appreciation for the art. There's a love of the of the ambition and the dream. Um, yes. uh, from a personality standpoint, Eddie Cantor's Eddie Cantor dies not too long after Joan Davis dies. Um, right. uh, and like she has. Yeah, exactly. And this came after like actually Eddie's Eddie's later years are actually very, very sad because his uh, one of his daughters dies. 
and he and Ida, their their health declines rapidly. Um, but the the legacy of Eddie Cantor came back in a form that I did not expect, which is uh, Boardwalk Empire, the HBO show that Martin Scorsese produced and that yeah. Terrence Winter primarily uh, conceived. Mm-hmm. It is when you watch the when you watch the way Cantor's being portrayed, he is very much a side character. He has very very little to do with the emotional impetus of that show, but mm-hmm. he is kind of used as an essential set dressing to help set the stage for like what what entertainment was back then yes on the boardwalk uh itself in atlantic city and you know it's interesting for for as forgotten as joan is somehow because of the way we overlook accomplished women of golden age hollywood and golden age television or golden age vaudeville Eddie Cantor being a man, of course he found his way back into pop culture at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't say that dismissively or, you know, trying to, you know, make a, make a point with a stick. It's more just like, you know, it, it's, it's nice that Eddie Cantor is remembered and remembered in that particular show um, because it does fit and suit. It's, it's no different than watching Don Rickles being portrayed by somebody in the Irishman to my mind. Like, you know, you, yeah. it, it sets the stage. Yes. Or or a Henny Youngman in Goodfellas. You know, Scorsese's really good at doing this. I'm just saying, guys. Um, but uh, but uh, but but Joan Davis. You know, when I'm having to when I'm having to learn about her out of the blue. This way, it seems unfair. Uh, it seems very unfair, and it's not too dissimilar from the unfairness that we experience when we had to when we when we were talking about Teresa Harris and her legacy on the Buck Benny Rides Again episode. Mm. We talked about an African-American actress who is largely forgotten unless you are a film aficionado and are aware of Val Luton or you are aware of certain comedies that she makes. And we find one film in that golden lot that shows something that could have been. And, mm-hmm. and so to me, with Joan Davis... We have a woman who was able to grasp destiny and control of her situation. And, you know, you can you can lay in elements of her behavior with alcoholism. I will never excuse that element of it. Well, I will what I will go to bat for is. There is more than enough clear evidence to suggest that alcoholism was not her was not the sole impetus of her decline. There is obviously there is. Yeah. Actually, I think it'd be better if you. I, I would love to ask you to sum up what Joan means to you as a as a creative. Well, she was the first person really that I admired on television, and because of seeing her, uh, I wanted to be a comedian. And some of the writings in my junior high and high yearbook, you know, when people write sappy things to you when you graduate, were about my being a comedian. So she made a tremendous impact on me. And those phone calls I had with her, yeah, actually talking to a movie star or a star of any dimension, was very inspiring to me. And I'm sad. What you say is true that she will not be remembered. She's not. Eddie might be, um, unless you go back and look at his original work. You may not know why he is to be remembered. But I think Joan is is just going to be lost, and that Uh makes me sad. I, I, um, well, I'm not going to leave this show on a sad note. I'm not going to make this the midpoint of show business. That's ridiculous, guys. 
Um, let me tell you, you have already written a book that will make sure people remember her. I hope so. And um, I would encourage uh, people listening um, to pick up Fading Fame because you get this story. You also get other stories that range the gamut from Mary Pickford on down to Doris Day. And um, watch the movie show business on YouTube and look for I Married Joan. Um, from what was indicated to me, it seems like I Married Joan is uh, there's there, there's no real there was no really any syndication of it because actually that was actually I, I hate to keep you here longer. But one more thing. You said that like when she, upon her passing, like nobody knew what to do with the material for yeah. I Married Joan. It was passed to Beverly's uh, husband, the only remaining person in the family after all these people died. And I don't know that he ever negotiated a deal with anybody. Uh, there are Joan Davis Appreciation Societies. And every once in a while, you'll see on Facebook that some episode of I Married Joan is available somewhere. But I haven't looked on YouTube, so I don't know that it's there. Uh, but I know that they're rare. They're hard to find. And that's too bad, too. Yeah. Right now, I'm looking into, like, right now, the... The, the on a home media aspect, there was five volumes of various episodes from different seasons that were found through budget compilations. So like the the bootleg DVDs, um, but there, uh, but and and scattered television shows it. Um, but there is nothing consistent. There's nothing available. And one of the other goals of this show is making people aware that there there is a there is a necessity for these things to exist to examine from a from a socio-political and you know cultural yes. aesthetic and then when you don't do that and you allow these things to decay you're only going to be talking about this and hearsay and gossip and you're not going to be able to see what it is good or bad and you're um, going to miss some good comedy yeah exactly and you're you're missing out on a wonderful performer who quite frankly, has timing that can compare to Lucy and at times even match it goes beyond, you know? Um, but Pam, on that note, I want to thank you for sitting down with me and chatting about show business. And really quickly, I want you to let people know again where they can find you and where they can find this book. Sure, they can find me at uh, pammunter.com. That's an easy one. Uh, and you can find the book on amazon.com. It's called Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. Ten short stories, two short plays. All with the same theme. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And please pick up this book, guys. You've got a you've got a treat coming in your hands for the stories, some of the stories that we've talked about in previous episodes and even and leading up to this episode. There are elements of Hollywood that we have discussed that Pam tackles in this book. It is fantastic. Um, okay. and, um, and Pam, uh, at some point we need to have you back on to talk about, um, either Joan or we, another element of your book, because I think that, I mean, especially Doris Day is one to be discussed because she has this big, broad yes. image. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's going to be the wrap up for this episode of the, of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. On the next episode, we will be going back to Vincent Minnelli territory where we are talking about two weeks in another town. So get ready for some drunken madness, guys. <laughs> uh, until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. 
Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.